Good morning. My name is Adam. If we have not had a chance to meet uh, one of the pastors here at the Vineyard, um, get all set up right here. And I got to tell you, I'm, I'm starting out a little bit of a deficit. Um, kind of my emotions are caught between a couple of chairs, if uh, you know what I mean. Because on the one hand, it's sunny, and I like the, it's going to be warm today. And, you know, after that snow, I like the warmth. But at the same time, it is not sunny in Daytona. And today, being one of the great American holidays of the Daytona 500, it just means that uh, I'm just going to have to uh, work my schedule tomorrow to make sure that I can watch the race. But I don't know if you're aware of this, but the Daytona 500 actually does fall in the, uh, the list of great American holidays in this manner. Uh, number one, the greatest American holiday that we celebrate is Memorial Day followed very closely by the Marine Corps birthday, and then Daytona 500, Independence Day, and all the rest. And so today is actually a really awesome holiday, and actually it's the beginning of the, the season of, of rest that I call the NASCAR season because I'm, I don't know if you are a NASCAR fan or not, but I bet you would become one if you watch a race, especially with the way that I learned to watch races with my infant daughters. When they were um, they were just two months old, the, their first Daytona 500 in 2008. They taught me how to watch NASCAR. You watch the first part, like the beginning of the race, and then you just go to sleep. <laughs> because that, like that, it just, like, it, it, it lulls you into this restful state. And then you rest for a few hours, and then boom, you're awake at the end, and there's all this excitement and all this good stuff, and then the race is over, and in the middle, you slept. So, infants can teach you a lot. The Daytona 500 is the beginning of my restful season that'll take me all the way to every, every Sunday afternoon through now until November. This, well, actually until I kind of forget to watch NASCAR because it goes on so long. But during that period of time, I am rested on Sunday afternoon because I get a good nap. So I will just say uh, uh, happy holidays to you for those of you that are also uh, looking forward to being rested when uh, this NASCAR season kicks off. But um, we're actually not here to talk about the Daytona 500, um, although I could. But this winter we are together. uh, We're in the book of Mark. We're studying the book of Mark. We're looking through the gospel of Mark We're paying particular attention to how Mark details the defiance of the ministry of Jesus, how Jesus came against social and cultural norms, how how he came against religious traditions and religious leaders, also how sometimes he even came against civil authorities. All of this as he brought the good news to the people that he met. So, So far, as we've kind of moved through the the gospel of Mark, we've seen a structure of defiance emerge from the text, a template that that allows us to take what Jesus is doing, how Jesus defied, what he defied, when he chose to defy, all of that stuff allows us to build a structure that, that we can then apply for our own work. The structure that's emerging looks a little bit like this. The defiance exemplified by Jesus in the Gospel of Mark is a defiance that that is sacrifice rather than defiance for gain. We're not seeing Jesus improve his safety. We're not seeing Jesus improve his comfort. We don't see Jesus prosper 
We don't see him gain in prosperity. But what we see always is that someone is compassionately rescued because of his defiance. Jesus attacks evil. He attacks rituals that are made void of meaning due to repetition. He attacks ways of treating people that have been normalized by culture. Always, all of this is done to beckon someone or to beckon some people closer to himself. To beckon closer to God. Now, his defiance is about a path towards reconciliation between God and his people. His defiance is about reconciliation between the creator and creation. This gives us a metric of defiance being replicated. Defiance in support of the mission of God saves others and leads to consequences for the defier. So we see a saving of others, but also consequences for the one that's defying. Jesus shows us that defiance is an act of sacrifice and an act of service, both service and sacrifice. Service and sacrifice are always about the good of another. And when done as Jesus did, always, always for people that didn't earn it and don't deserve it. Now Mark is also helpful in in his betrayal of what Jesus' life looked like because when the gospel that he wrote, more than the other three gospels that we have in Scripture, clearly demonstrate the consequences of this defiance. It is more clear in the gospel of Mark than in the other three gospels. The consequences that come for those living for the will of God. Really, another way to say that is salvation because of sacrifice. Mark presents salvation because of the sacrifice of Jesus. Now, so far, as we've kind of moved through the first uh, five chapters of Mark, we've been on the periphery of the consequences of Jesus' defiance. On the periphery of the cost. But today we're going to begin to see more clearly, the forming of the ultimate consequence that's going to come for Jesus because of his defiance. We're also going to see the attempts that come following his defiance by the people that are defied. We're going to see also something that is also kind of reminiscent of rings on a pond when a stone is thrown, as the the rings kind of ripple out as that defiance of Jesus strikes the calm water and the ripples start to come out, we see response and consequence, but then we also see a consequence for the consequence givers. And all of this stuff sort of linked together that makes it not linear, but a demonstration of of relationship. We're going to see an interesting outcome uh, that, that, that comes from this. But also, we're going to see the consequences that Jesus feels. And and with that, we're going to begin today, Mark chapter 6, starting with verse 1. Jesus left that part of the country and returned with his disciples to Nazareth, his hometown. 
The next Sabbath, he began teaching in the synagogue, and many who, who heard him were amazed. They asked, where did he get all this wisdom and the power to perform such miracles? Then they scoffed. He's just a carpenter, the son of Mary, the brother of James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon. And his sisters live right here among us. They were deeply offended and refused to believe in him. Then Jesus told them, a prophet is honored everywhere except in his own hometown and among his relatives and his own family. And because of their unbelief, he couldn't do miracles among them except to place his hands on a few sick people and heal them. And he was amazed at their unbelief. This is the second time in the Gospel of Mark that we see the effect of, uh, of the ministry of Jesus, the, the effect that it has on the people that ought to know him best. At the end of Mark chapter 3, we see the family of Jesus go to where he's teaching and ask him to come outside so they can talk to him. He's inside teaching. He's doing the stuff that Jesus does. His family comes to that place, sits outside, and, and, and sends somebody in like, hey, would you go and get him? Have him come out. They want to talk to him about what he's doing. They want to hold an intervention for him to get him to slow his roll and, and to return to the way that he was before his defiance of, of culture and religion. They wanted him to stop. They didn't want him to be the stone thrown into the pond that made all the ripples. They wanted him to go back the way he was. We see here, as Jesus returns to Nazareth, his hometown, in Mark chapter 6, we see here again a reaction from people, especially the people that assume that they know him. They assume that they know him because they grew up with him. They assume that they know him because they know something of his family. They've built a paradigm for who Jesus is, and they use that as a lens to view everything that he has, has been doing. Now, when we talk about what he's been doing, what we're talking about is the effects of defiance of Jesus, the effects that there have been so far. Um, we see this uh, through, through Scripture, that, that this is not something that, that is isolated, that this is something that, that actually becomes widely known. The things that Jesus is doing it, it isn't local, it becomes translocal because people start talking about it. We know that, that, that what he's done through the grace of God has seen the repentance of sinners, the birth of faith, the nourishment of those that have come to belief. All of this stuff has happened. Um, but also with the deliverance, with the healings, with all of the stuff that was good and positive and brought people closer to the creator God, we see the other side of that coin that it evoked hostility and criticism from those that are being defied, those that cannot see the love of God through the culture and religion that they've created, they're unable to see the compassionate rescue of the work of Jesus. Just as we've seen the formation of a template for how Jesus defied, 
Now we see offense, hostility, mockery, criticism, and contempt as consequences of that defiance. What Jesus had been doing had become well known. The people in Nazareth had heard. They likely had seen somebody, or at least, you know, maybe it, like the, the, the Kevin Bacon deal, like we're all connected to Kevin Bacon through, uh, you know, was it six or whatever it is, that separation. And actually, if you are a part of this church, you, you are closer to Kevin Bacon than you think because Jenna used to work for his brother. So you actually like shattered that whole deal. But, but they, they likely knew somebody or knew somebody that knew somebody that was affected by the ministry of Jesus. They had heard about the healing. They had heard about the deliverance. They had heard about those things, but also they heard about the people that Jesus spent his time with. They heard about the behavior of the disciples that went against the religious customs. They heard about perhaps what they would see as irreverence. They heard about things that made them uncomfortable. They heard about the things that called them to something that was different than what made them comfortable. And, the, and what that did was lead to offense, hostility, mockery, criticism, and contempt. Having heard all of these things, they see Jesus return to town. He comes home. I don't know if you've ever gone home, but it's a little different sometimes after you've been gone for a little while. Uh, where I grew up in, in a small town, uh, I was, I, I've been back a few times, and, and it, it, it's weird how different things look. It's weird because it's not as big as I thought it was when I was there when I was a kid. Like everything has kind of changed, but also one of the things that we miss is that I've changed. I don't go back to my hometown the way that I left it. But the people that are still in the town have, even if it's an unspoken expectation, that what would return is what left. And so they're thinking of Jesus, as, as Jesus had left town, they're thinking of him in a different way than he came back. And the way that he came back was offensive to them. It was offensive because they assumed that they knew him. They knew his family. Jesus is returning as a, he's returning as a rabbi would, would return. And, and in this culture, that means something. A rabbi is a person of stature, of authority, of power. This man is coming back as a rabbi. Who does he think he is? Not just as, as a rabbi, but the way that rabbis traveled, they had an entourage. Surrounded by people that would follow him. That would listen to the things, like, that, would, that would try to record the things that they had to say. And this would give a little bit of a power. Like, obviously, the bigger your entourage, the bigger of a deal you were. And this could actually be the way that you could present to people that, like, I'm a really big deal. Look at all the people that follow me. So having a follower was a big deal. So this guy that, that left, that they knew, is coming back with followers. Who does he think he is? They knew better than the people that were following him. They grew up with Jesus. 
They knew his family. Can you imagine being judged by your siblings? Come on, that's kind of funny, right? That's some of, I mean, if you're sitting next to your sibling, I guess maybe not, but, uh, or if your siblings might be watching later on the recording. Um, not, nothing at all? Your sibling, okay. I apologize if I made fun of your siblings in error. Um, your siblings are great. But sometimes a sibling can give a family a bad name. That does happen. Now Brad just landed on Brad. Brad's with me. I got one. It just takes one. They grew up with him. They knew his family. Because of their supposed knowledge of him, everything that he had done fell on deaf ears because of the contempt that comes from who do you think you are? The Greek word that's used in the text that that some of the people are using to describe Jesus in Mark chapter 6 when they say, he's just a carpenter. What that word really can be kind of fleshed out to present, what it fully means is he's a tradesman. He's working class. He's a layman. This is a simple man with a simple job. How could a man from that class teach us anything? How could a man like that have anything for us that we don't know? They're taking what they think that they know about him, they're applying it to the discomfort that they feel about what he's doing and teaching, and they're coming to the place of contempt. The people of Nazareth are looking for reasons to disqualify Jesus. By extension, they're looking to disqualify what he's teaching, and they're looking to condemn his defiance because they don't want to change. That's really the long and the short of of what's happening. They're looking for the reason to disqualify the teacher because if they can disqualify the teacher, they can disqualify the teaching. And if they can disqualify the teaching, then it doesn't have to change their life and they can keep doing what they've been doing this whole time. They are operating under an age-old paradigm that even exists today, that if you can just point out some hypocrisy from the teacher, you can disregard the teaching. This critical spirit is, is more about keeping the dead dead than it is about bringing new life. Now here, the only thing that they can find in Jesus, because there is no sin to be found, the only thing that they can find that would allow them to step back into their own comfort, the only thing that they can find that would allow them to point to some sort of hypocrisy is that the social norms of the day would deny a blue-collar type of guy the wisdom and authority to be able to speak into their life. It's the only thing that they can find, and so they, they latch onto it. They are looking for, for a learned type. They're looking for a learned type that comes from other learned types. They're looking for somebody that, that has authority because of their stature and their place in society. And that's not Jesus. Someone of the class and status that authority would be granted is certainly not the way that we would describe Jesus and his blue-collar roots. 
They're looking for somebody. And what they get is Jesus. They get a tradesman. They don't like what Jesus is calling them towards. So they use this as an entry point of offense. They're offended. Their offense leads to contempt. And that contempt leads to a mocking criticism and doubt that created an atmosphere that that stifled the work of the Spirit. And so now we have layering consequences. One consequence of defiance is contempt. But now there's a consequence of the contempt because those that hold Jesus in contempt miss the work of the living God. So this contempt, this attitude of scorn, this attitude of derision, it's all aimed at Jesus, and it's also something that Scripture anticipated. In Psalm 22 and and Psalm 69, we see prophecy of this contempt. Contempt Jesus would, would experience both on his way to the cross, but also on the cross as he hung on the cross, this, this very uh, uh, scorn and derision is something that he experiences. And then the prophet Isaiah, we see that contempt would become a vehicle for actually getting him to the cross. It's activated contempt that would lead to the arrest, torture, and execution of Jesus. These are all things that Scripture prophesied. Psalm 22, 6 through 8 says, But I'm a worm and not a man. I am scorned and despised by all. Everyone who sees me mocks me. They sneer and shake their heads, saying, Is this the one who relies on the Lord? Then let the Lord save him. If the Lord loves him so much, let the Lord rescue him. We see in Psalm 69, You know of my shame, scorn, and disgrace. You see all all that my enemies are doing. Their insults have broken my heart, and I am in despair. If only one person would show some pity, if only one would turn and comfort me, but instead, they gave me poison for food, they offer me sour wine for my, for my thirst. It's interesting to read those words in the season that we're in now as we are moving closer and closer to Holy Week and Resurrection Sunday. Isaiah 53.3 captures this. He was despised and rejected, a man of sorrows acquainted with deepest grief. We turned our backs on him and looked the other way. He was despised, and we did not care. What we can pull from this is probably something that you have experienced in your life in a variety of different intensities and different angles. But contempt can only be satisfied by rejection and destruction. Contempt is the fruit of evil, and it manifests itself in rejection, scorn, and attempts to bring disgrace. It's a tearing down not a building up. Now, what what makes this tragic, what makes this event tragic, what makes contempt tragic, 
what, what makes all of this, whether we're talking about the, the actual events that, that Mark is talking about or how we can pull them out and actually apply them to a life that we've experienced. What makes it tragic is that it's a limited view of an unlimited Savior. Contempt leads to a limited view of an unlimited Savior. It leads to missing the compassionate rescue. One of the things that I love about the way that we are celebrating Lent together, this period of 40 days of preparation that started on Ash Wednesday this last week, that will move all the way through Holy Week and our celebration on Easter of Resurrection Day. There are so many different ways that we can, we can celebrate Lent together. One of them is fasting and repentance and thinking about all the things that we've done. But another one is to think about all the things that Jesus has done. Not what we have done, but what he has done for us. And so we can celebrate Lent in, in, in a way that, that, that marks what he's done for us that cannot ever end in contempt because what he did is he, he, he stepped into the contempt of others for us. Now, I'm not saying that, that, that celebrating Lent in a way that would focus on repentance or on fasting or giving something up, that isn't a negative thing at all. It's just not what we're doing this year. What we're doing is we're celebrating what he's done instead of focusing on what we've done that creates the chasm, the divide of things that, that, that we just cannot earn. We started Ash Wednesday looking at Psalm 51, and this is going to be the first uh, of, of our week. Of every week there will be a new input of a, a scripture and different exercises that we can do every day together. Psalm 51 is the first one, and, and the reason that I, I love that Psalm 51 is the first one is because this is uh, a psalm of David, and it's the psalm that he wrote right after Nathan the prophet came to him and and called him out for the biggest sins of his life and the way that he responded. And so this is also a way that we can respond to contempt. You think about all the people that might accuse you. You think about all the people in your life that might accuse you. If we look at Psalm 51, we don't need to take the bait that could lead to our derision what we do is say, yes, you're right. I did those things. And this is my response. Have mercy on me, O oh God. And we go through Psalm 51 together. And just for the, uh, a quick administrative note in the midst of this, there is a Psalm 51 sheet in the seat back in front of you that you can take with you and, and keep as we go through this. And, and the, the, this devotional will be sent out to our email list here uh, either this afternoon or early tomorrow, and we'll walk through that together. But back to why we're here. The tragedy of a limited view of an unlimited Savior, all of the things that they're missing that Jesus had done as he was going towards Nazareth could not happen in Nazareth because of the atmosphere that they created. William Barclay, in his commentary on this passage, says this, there can be no preaching in the wrong atmosphere. In an atmosphere of expectancy, the poorest effort can catch fire. In an atmosphere of critical coldness or bland indifference, the most spirit-packed utterance can fall lifeless to the earth. Yeah, come on, Jesus. That's what's that is exactly right. 
Jesus is teaching an important lesson to his disciples. While he's suffering the consequences of this defiance, he's still teaching. What he's experiencing, while he's experiencing this critical attack from the people that he grew up with, he's teaching his followers an important important lesson of ministry, an important lesson for us to take in our time between the Sundays. There can be no peace in the wrong atmosphere. There can be no peace in the wrong atmosphere. Again, turning to Barclay, he points this out. If men come together to hate, they will hate. If men come together to refuse to understand, they will misunderstand. If men come together to see no other point of view but their own, they will see no other. But if men come together loving Christ and seeking to love each other, even those who are most widely separated can come together in him. There is laid a tremendous responsibility that we can either help or hinder the work of Jesus Christ. We can open the door wide to him or we can slam it in his face. This lands for me because I know this to be true in my own life. In fact, one of the ways that I would characterize my walk with Jesus, my path of discipleship, my progress, sometimes my lack thereof, it can be tracked by the doors I open and the doors that I slam. This makes what Jesus is teaching and how Barclay is commentating on this teaching resonate with me. When I look back at the doors that I've opened and the doors that I've slammed. I've seen Jesus move in power. I have contributed to moments where that power was stifled by my own uh, posture. I've seen both. I would not have seen that if I hadn't let others speak into my life because it was a blind spot for me. I would talk about how a message fell flat or how there was a stifling or, or, and it would be something that I wish was somebody else's fault. But one commonality of all of those times is that it started with me. I would not have seen that without others speaking into my life. There's an element, I think, at least this is the way that it is for me. It may be different for how it expresses with you, but there's an element of the critical spirit that feeds off of self-righteousness, and it took the intentional work of people to whom that that I would submit to to have something spoken into that place to pull me out of. I can either open the door wide to Jesus or I can slam it in his face. What that means is is that I have the ability to give Jesus a consequence for his defiance. But also, it means that I can welcome his defiance 
and I can allow him to offer me the transformation that saves me from myself. Jesus is presenting all of this to his followers for a purpose. Taking them along with him on the journey, he's been preparing them for the next phase of the unfolding plan of God, the commissioning to do all of the things that he was modeling. That takes us to verse 6. Then Jesus went from village to village teaching the people. He called his 12 disciples together and began sending them out two by two, giving them authority to cast out evil spirits. He told them to take nothing for their journey except a walking stick, no food, no traveler's bag, no money. He allowed them to wear sandals, but not to take a change of clothes. I imagine they smelled. Like, you get sweaty in that part of the world. Anyway, wherever you go, he said, stay in the the same house until you leave town. But if any place refuses to welcome you or listen to you, shake its dust from your feet as you leave to show that you've abandoned those people to their fate. So the disciples went out, telling everyone they met to repent of their sins and to turn to God. And they cast out many demons and healed many sick people, anointing them with olive oil. Now in this passage, we see the template for the Great Commission. We see the, the, the seeding of these final instructions that Jesus leaves for his followers in the age of the church. With the commissioning to his mission, we see this both in, in this passage, but also when he gives the commission in, in Mark and in Matthew. With this mission that he gives us, with the assignment, comes the authority that he grants to do what he did in his name. So we have the assignment and we have the authority to carry out the assignment. With the commissioning, though, it comes a reality that the message of Jesus is not welcome in all places. The places where we go, the places where we find ourselves, the places that that, that you will be tomorrow, in the time between the Sundays, this message of Jesus is not welcome in every corner that we will find ourselves in. The resistance is real, and sometimes that resistance is violent. Added to that reality is the fact that that people that know us will sometimes struggle to see the message that we have due to the failures of our past or even the failures of our present. To some, the message will be disqualified because of who the messenger is. The message will be disregarded because it was brought to them by a sinner. Leaning back on Barclay and the way that he commented on on this passage, the same truth of our posture remains, or or, or, uh, can be reflected in the posture of others. If the message that we take from here is heard by those that come together to hate, they're going to hate. I'm avoiding a Taylor Swift reference. (laughs) Get behind me, Satan. 
if it's heard by those that refuse to understand, the message you bring will be misunderstood. If it's heard by those that can't see any other point of view but their own, they will see no other point of view. Because the message of Jesus is missed, it stands to reason that the person bringing the message will be dismissed. Those that that are unable to understand the radical transformation that's possible after compassionate rescue will never be able to see beyond the person they knew before they were compassionately rescued. Because they're not with you on the journey, because they were not with you in the dark night of the soul, because they were not with you on the moment that you're broken to the place of crying out to the living God, because they were not with you when you heard the words of a Savior say, you're my treasure. Because they were not with you on that journey, they didn't see the work that Jesus did in your heart. They didn't see the work that Jesus did that that transformed the way that you even look at other people. They didn't see the things that happened inside of you as you laid yourself bare to the Holy Spirit. Because of that, your message will be misunderstood by those that are intent upon misunderstanding it. Now, here's a word of caution. Speaking to myself in the same way that I'm speaking to to all of us, the reactions that we get from people to the message that we bring cannot be taken personally. We cannot allow that to be taken personally. What we see in this passage is an example of the extent of what Jesus is asking us to do. Bring the kingdom message, but also bring the kingdom mercy. Bring the message and bring the mercy. While offering the promise of Jesus, we are offering a hand to lift out of moral wreckage, out of physical pain, out of suffering. That hand will not always be taken. But whether or not it is taken is not the metric that that we utilize. It's not the metric that we're left with. It's not the metric that Jesus taught us. The metric is if we're able to respect the decision of rejection and not allow it to affect the offering of the hand the next time we see someone. Taking offense, taking attacks personally, allowing wounds to form from being rejected due to the message of Jesus. These are all difficult temptations that entice us. It entices me. One of the most difficult things in my journey has been attempting to not take things personally and not taking offense. We have Jesus that gives us this example. What Jesus does with this consequence of defiance is the ultimate example of his ministry. We can't miss this point. He will die for those that rejected him. Certainly not an example of taking things personally. 
Jesus dies for those that rejected him. And in his service, we're called to do the same. To die for those that will reject us. Matthew chapter 5, verse 11, Jesus reminds us that God blesses you when people mock you and persecute you and lie about you and say all sorts of evil things because you are my followers. What we see here is that there will be consequences for defying by the example of Jesus. But coming alongside the strife, coming alongside the contempt, coming alongside the difficulty, coming alongside the sacrifice of service, coming alongside all of that is the blessing of the living God. It's the love of a father and also it's the presence of a savior. Let's pray. Jesus, I ask that that you would release the gifts of your spirit here. We say, come Holy Spirit. And Father, as you release the gifts of your spirit, we ask that we would see the example that you set for us. Father, I pray that we could see the example of love that you have, the deep love that you would come and die for those that would reject you. And so, Father, I pray that that as we read through your activity on this earth, I pray that you would call us to the place of similar activity. Father, would you deal with all of the things that we have that might be barriers to this activity? Would you help us in our contempt? Would you help us in our offense? Father, would you help us when we're rejected? And Father, for the times that we put out our hand and it slapped away, would you keep our hearts soft and call us and lead us to the place of offering the hand again? Father, we pray that this would would bring us closer to your throne. But also, Father, we pray that this would give you glory. In Jesus' name.